You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Kim Crombo leads Wildlands Network's efforts to restore native carnivores to their rightful place on landscapes across the West. He works closely with diverse conservation partners and regional coalitions to engage scientists, communities, and elected leaders in the effort to secure species recovery and public support for wolves, bears, lynx, cougars, and other native carnivores. Kim served 20 years with the National Park Service in Grand Canyon, first as a river ranger and later as a wilderness coordinator. He also worked as a river guide for a decade and as Utah Wilderness Coordinator for the Sierra Club for two years. Beginning in 2000, Kim assumed various roles with the Grand Canyon Wildlands Council, including a stint as the Northern Representative for Arizona Wilderness Coalition. Before working on rivers and in wilderness activism, he spent four years with the Navy's SEAL Team 1, completing two combat deployments in Vietnam. Today I asked Kim to get us started with a status update on the battle to protect wolves across the country. The Fish and Wildlife Service, under the guidance of uh, President Trump and his minions, have uh, pursued or continue to pursue delisting of the wolf nationwide, except for the uh, Mexican wolf and the red wolf. But uh, what they're looking at is delisting the entire wolf population outside of the areas that were previously delisted through uh, congressional fiat. That was the first time uh, Congress ever intervened in delisting a wolf. So. Those states of Montana, Idaho, uh, Wyoming, and Eastern Oregon, and Eastern Washington were uh, officially delisted based upon political concerns. But mm-hmm. the rest of the nation is uh, currently the wolves, and the rest of the nation uh, currently uh, are protected under the Endangered Species Act. As long as it's enforced. Well, that's the you know, rule of law implies one, just laws, and secondly, the enforcement of those laws. You have to make it effective. Yeah, of course. Yeah, we've been talking a lot lately about um, there are laws on the books. It's not like that we're after really much of anything new law-wise. We just want people to uh, enforce. Um, we were just talking to Christopher Ketchum, and he's got his new book out, This Land, and he was talking about public lands and how people... Uh, in all of these various um, committees, local, state, and fed, they're very aware of the law, and they're also really savvy at circumventing it. Yeah, and as long as you've got high-paid lawyers, you know you can usually prevail on any argument you want based upon any law. But I think the laws require, you know, and regarding the protection of an endangered species and the ESA are fairly and I use that word loosely, fairly clear as to the objective is to restore and recover those populations and those species. What are some of the things as far as wolves uh, migrating? Like we're learning about wolves trying to come into Colorado and we're we're seeing wolves uh, migrating really well in the Pacific Northwest. There's what we're worried about in in terms of reintroduction areas, um, but what about 
migration and everything that's naturally happening, that can't be helping the issue. I think a lot of people seem to be using that as an example of why Trump and, and uh, federal land managers are, are right about how it needs to be controlled. Uh, those are pretty lame arguments that, you know, somehow we have to control the uh, movement of wolf populations when given the uh, uh, low numbers when you look at good potential recovery areas. That would include uh, the uh, Grand Canyon ecoregion, which is uh, uh, southern Utah, northern Arizona. That includes southern Colorado. Chances of wolves actually establishing viable, ecologically effective populations, you know, having to uh, travel through the killing fields of Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho are fairly remote in the near future. So there's not a real chance we can get populations established on their own. That's one of the reasons why we're trying to get through a citizen's initiative, getting a re direct reintroduction uh, into uh, Colorado, just as we did with the Yellowstone wolves. So that requires certain trade-offs in terms of the, uh, the protection afforded those, species, those populations. But that's really the only way we're going to get wolves into Colorado and, uh, and with the possibility of the uh, Mexican wolf reestablishing itself in the Grand Canyon ecoregion. It's really important that those populations re uh, achieve a number that's uh, sufficient to maintain uh, genetic integrity, population viability, and ecological effectiveness. So uh, that isn't going to happen without uh, intervention on our part. In light of all of the stuff that we're facing, conservation-wise as, as a whole, there's something in the back of my mind that just keeps counting down the days to the next administration, to holding, <laughs> on, to, holding on to what we have such as it is yeah. in the courts in, and in every other way that we can possibly just hold on. How much of that feels like that to you, that we're just, we're just trying to help there be no harm as much as possible until we have a working environment that is not this incredibly historically hostile to everything that moves that's not a cow? One of the difficult tasks of being a conservationist, as you well know, is maintaining a level of uh, Let's just call it conditional optimism. Hope is a word that's, you know, in terms of the, uh, in the historical and uh, context of uh, humanity, hope has a significant meaning, but hope has the shortcomings, as our esteemed Michael Sule and others pointed out, that it kind of, uh, I hope things get better, but uh, the problem is, unless we make things get better, they certainly won't. One of the uh, leading thinkers, uh, a guy named Stephen Pinkers, who has his detractors, but uh, basically wrote, well, wrote a book entitled The Better Angels of Our Nature, referring to there are individuals within our society that we can rely on to move these issues forward, whether it's wildlife conservation, whether it's uh, human rights, women's rights, those types of things. Obviously, the uh, preponderance of humanity has never been uh, easily moved and tends to be uh, resistant to change. So I guess what I'm getting at is that I tend to be what Michael Sule calls a possibilitist, being what is possible is what we're pursuing. I prefer the term conditional optimist because what it implies is, yes, I'll remain optimistic about the chances for, uh, for wildlife and humanity provided we do something about it. You know, if we just let things go and hope, quote unquote, that things get better, they're not going to. So 
it's really up to us to one maintain what protections and what kind of rights and, that we have now until we get rid of this uh, stable genius, this uh, <laughs> uh, pathological liar, this uh, sexist, uh, this uh, uh, just degenerate human being. And hopefully, the uh, what it boils down to, the way our system works, hopefully the Democrats can come up with a, an electable candidate that can prevail in the election that we can at least talk to that is not you know, sort of like some of the previous Democratic uh, administrations were not necessarily paying attention to all our issues. But you got to realize we elect a president, not a fairy godmother. And secondly, that keeps that really makes our job a lot easier that they're at least receptive and not hostile like the current administration. I talked to David Johns and he was talking about uh, conservation politics, of course, his latest book. And, uh, and he was talking about taking charge of the message and coming up with our own plans and following through with them and taking a hold of the conversation as much as we possibly can in all of the noise that's out there. I guess there's practical achievability built into that and all of that, but he was more of a mind of just, let's just say what we need, you know, and just go from there. Like if we're going to talk about half earth or wolves or whatever we're talking about, talk about the plan in isolation from all the noise and the current administration and all the attacks that are happening. Just what do we need? What's the big goal? What, what do you want for wolves in this country outside of what's practically achievable or something we can do in the near term? What do they really, really need? One of the things like that seemed overly idealistic, like half Earth, is not. What it, it can be reframed in the context that what we need to sustain this planet, including human beings you know, and their civilization, but as well as the diversity of life on this planet, is that we need to dedicate uh, half the planet to sustain those ecological processes. Now, there's a variety of ways of doing that. And that's where we have room for discussion. But we want to be very clear that we need half of this planet devoted to sustaining native biodiversity. And here are the reasons, which, by the way, happen to include continue uh, survival, if not just prosperity of the human race. So to put it in that context, and that's where we go from there. You know, and here's how we go about uh, protecting the other half for biodiversity, for the uh, processes that sustain the planet and make it not only just habitable, but uh, enjoyable. So there's room for debate as how you go about that. But the goal, like David said, is very clear that we want to maintain the diversity of life on this planet. And that's what Half Earth is uh, the essential step in. In terms of wolf recovery, uh, the argument we make and we continue to make is one, wolves are very essential for healthy ecosystems. And uh, it just happens to be that public lands are the best opportunity we have out west to ensure that, or do the best we can to ensure that happens. But wolves are also valuable in and of themselves, and that really reflects upon who we are as a species, because we can sit there and conceptualize the, our responsibility to this planet and to the, all the uh, living creatures on it, and it's very important that we uh, do that. I mean, I think that's essential that we assume the responsibility of making sure that wolves are out there, that the ecosystems are healthy, that the, the diversity of life 
flourishes. And I don't see any contradiction there in terms of how we go about doing that. You've been around for the entire wolf saga, the reintroduction from the very beginning. Like you, you've uh, at least been a fly on the wall, if not actively involved uh, in many, many, many campaigns and followed the whole thing. What is your sense now in 2019, almost 2020, I guess, of how all of that has gone? Are there surprises? I mean, talk about the good stuff too. So a lot of good stuff happened in all of that as we're fighting. And we seem to, I don't want listeners and people to forget that we, we are here because of a string of successes, as well as we're having challenges because of a string of setbacks. What, what's been your overall feeling about the history of all of this that's gotten us to this point what's your favorite memory to start with that <laughs> well my favorite memory it's not my favorite memory is that i really missed out on the big event that required yeah, regarding wolf uh, restoration and that was in the pleistocene right when they uh, they all came down but i think we have a long history of where where we in terms of the latter part of the uh, 20th century that we shifted from a policy of wolf genocide uh, extermination to one where we're going to recover that species now there's a lot of resistance to that but there's also a lot of support for that and as we do our work which we have been doing uh, highlighting the importance of these animals in the cosmic scheme of things in terms of their ecological role but also connecting with the intrinsic values that people appreciate, that they understand that these are living creatures, that they are intelligent, they have their faults, not as many as we do, but uh, but they deserve a place on the planet and that they are valuable in and of themselves. They are valuable to people that can appreciate it, sort of like art or music. You know, there's, I think things are getting better. I referred to Steven Pinker, who has been criticized as being a little bit too optimistic, but he, what he did was uh, look at the trend of human civilization, and things are getting, in terms of violence, have been substantially reduced in, uh, by an order of magnitudes. Things are better for human beings if you want to go outside and not get killed by your neighbor, that kind of thing. They're substantially better. Uh, the amount of violence has decreased, that we've made progress in human rights, that we've made progress in animal rights, that we've made progress in protecting the environment, given that there's been a lot of things that have been, we've had to uh, press up against. So I would say that the trend, that history, is pretty much on our side. The problem is, time isn't. And that's where we get into uh, how to best go about protecting what we got and uh, assuring that we set in motion things that will sustain us and, and the diversity of life uh, well into the future. So I guess that's one of the reasons why I feel conditionally optimistic because again, history is on our side. There's just a lot of good uh, things happening out there. There's really decent people on this planet that are pursuing uh, to make life better, to make uh, the world better, a better place. So you go with that. You know, you look at all the slime bags and sons of bitches out there. You know, you can focus in on that and uh, 
one of my favorite lines from uh, was Aldous Huxley in Ape and Essence, and it goes roughly like this. The, the uh, squids embrace the prurient apes, defiling touch. <laughs> Do I like the human race? Oh, no, not much. You know, <laughs> there was a period of my, in my life when that was, yeah, you know, I just got back from uh, one deployment to Vietnam. I worked uh, about 65 combat operations as an automatic weapons man. And I was looking at going back again, which I had to do, and uh, looking at the uh, what was going on in the war itself was obviously a disaster from a lot of perspectives. There were people that were opposing it. And I thought, well, good, do it. But it's sort of like the students that went out and protested the war, and uh, uh, I was cheering for them. Uh, and then when they got their, uh, when they got their uh, deferment numbers, and they realized that they're probably going to be okay, that pretty much stopped, you know. And what happened is we elected Dixon, another 20,000 Americans, and another million uh, Asians died because of that. And it's kind of hard to overlook that. And it was the American government, but it was also the American people that went along with that shit. So, yeah, it was hard to emerge from that with any kind of uh, respect or admiration, not to mention optimism regarding the fate of humanity. But I had the opportunity. To, I got a river job on the river, you know, and uh, just kind of wound it down and went to college and got married, had kids, worked for the Park Service, which uh, I'm really glad I did because I now have a retirement, you know, those kinds of things. But I also feel that we've made progress. And I also I feel that we're not screwed if we just get our asses in gear across the board and make this place a better place, make this world better and not let the sons of bitches drag us down. Well, I had a secret um, mission in bringing that question up because I know that a lot of people who will hear this um, sometimes find themselves on social media. I know we all do it. We can admit it. We can admit it. Uh, And the worst of them all is Twitter um, in terms of if you want to go hear a whole litany of just bad news about everything (laughs) that's going on, and wolves are, you know, if, if you've got your feed curated as I do, you're going to see a lot of wolf stuff. And I think a lot of people, the reason I brought that question up and had you frame it in, in what's good about where we are, how we got here, and that there are wolves to worry about in the first place, is that I think a lot of people saw the Yellowstone stuff. They saw the Mexican wolf reintroduction stuff, and they thought at that point everything was okay. And then it was just so prescient of me to bring that up because then you brought up the the Vietnam thing. And once everybody thought that everything was cool with them personally, selfishly, or, or whatever, Nixon was allowed to happen. And we sort of let a Nixon happen to our wolves and to conservation overall. Because when we have these big victories, the public... Well, it, you know, it took a lot for the conservation movement to get there. Lots of resources, lots of articles, lots of posting, lots of organizing and everything else. And once you've won the victory you've been after, you kind of need to take a breath. But you have to keep at it lest you have the same problem that you described with the war 
that also is in, it really has happened. I mean, do you feel like that's what happened with wolves is that people got a little caught up in look, wolves are back. And then national geographic and everybody else had these great big specials on how they changed the course of rivers and all of that stuff. And I feel like people sort of felt like we won that battle. And then maybe that opened the floodgates to the attack, the severe, severe attack on wolves and other uh, species that we have now because we maybe let our guard down as a public. Being human, you know, you need a reprieve from the reality of existence. You know, I mean, one is that we're all mortal. We're going to die. You know, why, why invest in a good education if you're going to die, right? Uh, <laughs> there's always that. And the thing is that you have this chance, you have this opportunity uh, given to you for whatever reasons. And then here we are. I'm looking out the window at a beautiful little forest and flowers and birds and all that. And I have that opportunity, you know, that's going to go take advantage of the moment, take advantage of the time that we have. And what is the best way for you to fulfill that? Ed, Edward Abbey was, was, was talking about, uh, you know, you may outlive the, you know, you will outlive the bastards. Well, you don't outlive the bastards. You know, there yeah. is always a new crop out there. But he said it's very important to be a half-hearted radical, a half-hearted, uh, I forget the term, but it just enjoy life, you know, do what's right, do what you got to do. And above all, you know, enjoy the other half. You know, one, one comment was joy, shipmates, joy. You know, you only have this little, sliver of time to enjoy that to live your life uh so do it and quit whining but was yogi Berra said there ain't no home place you know in life you know you yeah. hit that ball you know get score a homer and you keep running and you keep running and uh, there ain't no home plate you know this is life this is the way it works and uh, take advantage of your opportunity to engage in it as my son and I prepare to attack a major class one river tomorrow. Um, <laughs> Where are you going, by the way? Yeah, and I'll, I'll let you know. Uh, you know, I'll call you as soon as we're off the river safely. It's dangerous, but we, we are going to persevere. Um, I think about Dave Foreman on the river, and I know you've had moments uh -huh. with Dave on the river. Yeah. And I remember this very specific conversation where I, for some stupid reason, because I can't get back in that mood, no matter how I try to understand why I said it. I just haven't been able to. Dave knocked me out of it. I've never been able to return. But I, I was working with Sky Island Alliance at the time. And there was a bunch of work that I had left to get on this river. I think we were doing the San Juan, nine days, something like that. Big old trip uh, with uh, Nancy and Cherry's Jubilee on Wednesday after putting in on a Saturday. I have no idea how she managed to do that stuff and have cold ice cream on a Wednesday in a hundred degree heat. <laughs> we're lazily floating down the river. My boat's next to Dave's or I might've been on his great big tanker boat. And I just mentioned all the work that, that was waiting for me. I had grant proposals to write. I had all these things to do and man, Dave schooled me. He's like, you are working. He was almost offended. He almost sounded a little bit offended that I said it. He said, this is our work. This is what we're doing. We're not just floating down a river. I'm thinking about book ideas. I'm thinking about the things that need to be done. And I'm getting an on-the-ground view of what needs to be protected and how everything is working on the ground. And if you don't go out and do that, 
And if you don't consider that serious, then you're he basically paraphrased, you're screwed in the head and you got to quit it and stop it. And he just knocked me right out of that. I never thought that again. And I've always enjoyed 100% every time I've gotten on a river, every time I've gotten out in the woods, um, just because of that sage advice um, sternly delivered. The enjoyment too is part of our job. The appreciation of what we're doing. We're really extremely lucky to have a job where we do that. But it's also there has to be a commitment there. Why? Why are you doing this? Well, that's a pretty personal reason, and it's something that only each of us as individuals can answer. So I always talk about you know as long as there's one square inch of coral reef or one wolf, even though it's you know you need two, as long as there's any of that, it's our duty. It's our duty and our curse in a way to live in a world of wounds. And here you are still cranking away, still optimistic and getting things done there's things that there's things that we can do that we have there's things that we have some kind of say or a certain level of control and there's the rest of the stuff that we don't pick something that's personal pick something that means a lot to you commit to that be that uh, half-hearted radical that abby suggested and then enjoy life, enjoy your company, enjoy your kids, enjoy your dog, enjoy your wildlands and get grounded in that. You know, this, this happy adventure is going to be over for us, you know, in a, in a blink of an eye, but the world is depending on us to allow they to continue. And, you know, the diversity of life, including, including human life, there's a lot of good things about humanity. Uh, that is worth fighting for. There's still some good in this world and it's worth fighting for. Paraphrasing one of my heroes, uh, Tolkien. What are the hot buttons right now for you with wolves? You know, we got almost 2 million people to chime in, you know, that probably never even saw wolves. Yeah. Support. All of those, all of those surprised people who thought this was all taken care of. I, I could see the shock yeah. and on social media, their reactions are like, I can't believe this is happening. That's actually one of the most oft-uttered phrases that I've seen. I can't believe this is even a a situation. Let's appreciate that. Let's move forward with that. We've got some, uh, we'll see what the administration does. You know, this is the fourth time the Fish and Wildlife Service has been slapped back. The courts, for the most part, you know, we can rely on at least getting, buying some time until we get another administration, which is another challenge. Uh, those are the two things that, uh, you know, just keep up the, uh, the drumbeat that wolves are good. People like wolves. You know, there's uh, a million stories out there about wolves. Let's keep that up. You know, keep wolves in the public eye. Hold, you know, and get, hire some, keep the good lawyers we got, hire some more in terms of the uh, litigation strategies, because that's really really for the short term, what we absolutely need. Looking down the road, we'll just take this chance and that chance and this opportunity and that opportunity and uh, keep it up until the chances and opportunities evaporate. And I think that's a long ways off. So I wish I had a, uh, a guidebook, <laughs> but we don't. Yeah. And uh, so let's, uh, let's plow with what oxen we've got and uh, make the most out of the situation. Uh, don't get too uh, caught up on uh, getting depressed. Um, there is the light at the end of the tunnel. It, uh, 
it may be the end of the tunnel or it may be the freight train rolling down the track <laughs> towards you. I don't know. But but anyway, yeah, it just doesn't do any good to give up. Well, so what you're saying is you're making a pretty good case for organizing and um, people taking part in things they may have been disillusioned by in the past. You're saying that um, that, that, as it always has, when enough force is brought to bear, enough voices are brought, that organizing really works and for people to take part in that. It really is valuable, even if you feel like nobody's hearing you because of the current climate or whatever, you've kind of just proven that that's not the case, that to get 2 million people to speak out, uh, it really does work. Even in this administration, I've seen so many instances where people just making their voices heard in ways that don't seem significant on an individual level really is even working when Darth Vader is in power. The resistance works as long as there's enough of us to it, right? Yeah. There was a combat experience I had, and we were inserting it. It was late. You know, we always went out at night. And we happened to be in a little fiberglass Boston whaler with about a quarter-inch fiberglass between us and the whatever. And we pulled in and inserted, and uh, five of us kind of spread out to form a perimeter. And then I heard something in the bushes and then heard a thump about 10 feet away. And uh, my guy next to me said, it's a grenade, you know, so spun around, dropped down on the ground, put my butt toward the grenade, knowing that uh, when it went off, I better take off my ass than my head and counted to what I thought was a prop. You know, I just said, okay, it should have gone off by now. I stood up and just mowed down the whole area around me. Couldn't see anything other than some muzzle flashes until I, you know, fired off the hundred rounds and slowly but surely everybody's kind of getting up and, uh, I felt kind of smug, you know, because <laughs> I was the only one standing. And afterwards, the uh, officer in charge, who I really admired, he was a great, great officer. And he said, you know, uh, we'd like to put you in for a, an award, you know. Uh, and I said, wait, wait a minute. What else was I going to do? <laughs> you know, what else can you do? Yeah. And he goes, yeah, yeah, what else? But anyway, they, uh, you just do what you got to do. You know other conservationists and you know biologists and other people who are in the fight and they come from radically different backgrounds than you. What had had that to do with how you turned out as a conservationist and how you view everything and how you take up a fight and organize within that fight? One is that I found myself in a situation going on the SEAL team. It was sort of my fault and I accepted that. I think that's really important, taking responsibility for decisions like that. The thing is that the, I went on over 70 combat ops, you know, and a lot happens on those things. <laughs> um, I just remember there's a lot of things, you know, things that I really question. Uh, but I did say it's my own damn fault. That's why we're here. That's why I'm here. I don't, I didn't believe in the war. I ended up believing in the guys I was with. But my whole objective was to get through that. And then I had to decide to go back again. <laughs> you know. Also, you know, there was a lot of things that uh, I was proud of. You know, there's a lot of opportunities for courage. There's a lot of opportunities for uh, compassion. But I did kill a lot of people. And that, you know, is one of those things that's sort of out there. I don't have any remorse, although there are a lot of regrets, and there's a difference in those words, but 
I just had to come to terms with that. And I don't mind talking about my experiences. I just don't want to bore people with the, uh, there I was uh, syndrome. But uh, <laughs> so anyway, I've got that reference point, which very few people have in our, in our group, which is good. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of other opportunities for courage, for admiration, for dedication, for those types of things. And a lot of people that I really very much respect. And, uh, but yeah, my perspective, given the situation I was in is unique. It's not like being a Marine where you go out there and kill or be killed and that kind of stuff. I mean, there was a lot of, we were a small group that targeted individuals that went in and either tried to capture them, but usually ended up killing them. And, you know, that it was almost like being the Superman scenario. You know, I got in a helicopter crash and got ambushed a couple of times, but it's a very different perspective of war and uh, that environment. So, yeah, I began to uh, I began to understand myself a little better and uh, it kind of take the responsibility of uh, those decisions. So, how did you come back to civilian life and when did conservation stuff start? Did it start before you before you signed up? Did it start really heavily after you got back or some combination thereof? Oh yeah, well I was a kid in Hawaii, you know, it was one of the great things that happened. My mom divorced the, uh, the naval pilot, married a Marine pilot, and uh, we went to Hawaii. And so from 10 to 13, I was living in Hawaii as a kid. Got to go to school barefoot, was on the beach and in the Kaneohe Bay. And I made a lot of friends with the uh, sand crabs and the uh, barracudas and all the other animals that were there. I got to swim in the ocean. It was warm. It was had a... Uh, acquaintance get his leg taken off by a shark and die you know those types of perspectives that i think are really really critical in growing up i loved it so no there was a real strong attachment that i attribute directly to that opportunity when i got out of the service i landed a job with d holiday uh our holiday river expeditions on the colorado river and that was i was actually making more money as a guide than i was as a SEAL, automatic weapons man, you know, combat duty, uh, double hazardous duty pay. And I was making about $20 more a month than that. Hmm. But it was just an opportunity just to experience that. And I was a guide, you know, went to school and stuff, but for about 10 years before I went in the park service. So that was the opportunity to unwind. That was the opportunity to meet a lot of people that were involved in conservation. And uh, so it just sort of took off from there. It's people, I think, who have stories like yours and the way that you grew up who really can't appreciate that. I just, I'm like, all right, how are we going to steer this giant ship of people who are really wrapped up with their phones and cars and gas toys and technology and everything else? We get into this trance and then I just see a bug or a butterfly or something and I freak out thinking that is so, why aren't, why isn't everybody just staring at this bug right now or whatever bugs next to them or they have a wolf encounter if they're super lucky or any kind of wildlife encounter. Uh, it seems like humanity is living as if none of that exists sometimes. I'm uh, trying to recall the passage, but it's from the Old Testament. Basically, what it was saying is this, the younger generation's going to hell in a handbasket. This is the human condition. You know, it's something that we've given a lot of thought to, a lot of the art, a lot of the music, a lot of the uh, uh, history is tied up in that realization that there ain't no home plate, you know, yeah. and this is something that we have to address. And I have a belief that 
there's enough of particularly younger generation which you know there's enough interest there in what we're about given the the times that we are living through right now that they're living through that I think we're going to pull it off you know and I'm just going to uh, like I said history gives a lot of support for that idea the problem again is we're running out of time it feels like a last ditch effort on the part of people who see the planet as resources and money just basically they look at a grove of trees as dollar bills and it always takes a small group of people dedicated to make change and a lot of those end in failure it's a realization that yeah the uh, humanity out there is this uh, big slug that's moving along but there are again there are the better named angels of uh, not only our nature but society that i think will will pull this off it's not a guarantee we can't sit back on our ass and uh, assume it's going to happen gee i hope it's going to happen that kind of attitude but yeah. if, let's let's continue our efforts let's keep keep fighting for what good there is in this uh life and uh don't let the bastards get you down you know take some time and enjoy this opportunity because it's your opportunity Margaret Mead, was it? Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. It's refreshing and rare in this day and age to, um, especially somebody who's seen all the things you've seen, living in this world of wounds, as Aldo Leopold would counsel us, that you would be this optimistic and that you have a generally good feeling uh, about the future. Um, that's really, really sadly rare. So thank you so much for that. Conditionally optimistic. Remember. Conditionally optimistic. Yes. 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 Okay. But thank and, you, Jack. That's a, that's a kind words. Where can people find out more about what you're working on and how they can help? Well, I work for Wildlands Network. You know, there's a website. I'll be more than happy they'll, to contact anybody that wants to speak to me. Uh, I like hearing their stories, too wildlandsnetwork.org everybody can go check that out you can find out kim's uh, contact information and everybody else that does wonderful work there kim thank you so much for being on the rewilding podcast today i really really appreciate your time well it was fun and i appreciate your time and i really appreciate the work you do and uh, all your colleagues so party on thanks for listening to the rewilding earth podcast be sure to visit rewilding.org to subscribe so you don't miss past and future episodes. And while you're there, please consider supporting Rewilding by making a donation or subscribing to the Rewilding Earth newsletter.